Hello and welcome, everyone. You are listening to The Crack. This is the podcast where I ask you, what's the crack? So what's the crack, guys? Get in touch. Let us know. You can get in touch by emailing. We are thecrackpodcastcontact at gmail.com. That is thecrackpodcastcontact at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, where we are The Crack Podcast. You can at us on Twitter, where we are at Podcast Crack, capital P on Podcast, capital C on Crack. And for you image-loving listeners out there, we have an Instagram too, where we are thecrack.podcast. So for Instagram, that is thecrack, all one word, full stop, podcast. Thecrack.podcast. Give us a follow, and I'll follow you back. I'll scroll through your photos and nervously try not to like anything from a while ago. But yeah, email, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. No website or P.O. box. Yet. But get in touch. Anything at all. Maybe you've got good news to share, bad news to share. Fuck, maybe it's your birthday and you just want to hear happy birthday said to you by some dude sitting alone talking to himself in his flat. Well, I can make that happen. Whatever the reason, please do feel free to get in touch. Right, now. So what's going on with this episode? If you've been listening for a while, you may have noticed that all the episodes are numbered. If you've not been listening for long, well I number the episodes. And hello. So whether you've been here for a while or not, you may have noticed that this episode is not numbered. Which means it is a special kind of episode. Like a shiny football sticker. Or when your video was a coloured kind of plastic. Do you remember that? Hundred One Dalmatians was white with black spots. My Pokemon, the first movie video, it was yellow. I'm sure I had another one. Was it Hoot? I had a green video. Point is, ladies and gentlemen, this is a special episode. I've only had two other unnumbered episodes before this one. The first was a Halloween episode, where I read out ghost stories. True ghost stories, if you know what I mean. So that was in October. The next special episode I did was in November, and that was me branching into true crime. Which is a subject I enjoy very much. Which is kind of fucked up, but there's certainly enough material out there about it to show that I'm not wrong for enjoying it. Must be part of human nature. But I'm not a psychologist, so let's not get into that. The true crime episode was about the unsolved disappearance of Rainey McRae and her son Andrew in the 70s, in 1976. And it got very good feedback, which was lovely. Which means I'm going to do more stuff like that. So Ghost Stories and Rainey McRae, those were the previously unnumbered ones. And now this one. This episode was ideally going to come out in December. Oops. So I could say that I do a special one every month, but that's clearly not happened. Sorry guys. So, special episode number three. The first special was Paranormal, the second was True Crime, but this one is probably, honestly, closer to Paranormal. But I'm going to go ahead and claim that this is my first episode in the cryptozoological realm. Aspects closer to Supernatural, but we'll see. So today's episode, guys, this is an episode about the big grey man of Ben McDewey. Or, oh, Jesus, as it's pronounced in Gaelic, I'm fearlieth more. So I. Right, so, where to start? Right, well, way up here, in the north of Scotland, the Highlands, Bagpipes, haggis, all that shite. Well, no, not really. That's more Edinburgh. What are we? Forests, heather, tweed. Right, aye. Up here it's all about the outdoor, Scotland type of stuff. The gritty reality, guys, is that right below the surface, yeah, wipe away the short bread crumbs and shake off the whiskey drops. There is a real world. And that real world exists up here. That's a conversation for another day. So I'll come to the Highlands, stay in one of our many, fucking many hotels. Golf, fish, sail, shoot. 
stalk, dance, eat, drink, and spend, spend, spend. Maybe I'm in a bad mood. That was awfully negative. What was my point? Yes, something else that brings plenty of visitors up here, but it's also something that plenty of locals enjoy too, is taking a day off to go bouncing away up one of the hills. Now what I like about that, and I'm going to get sentimental here guys, what I like is that once you get up to a high enough point, you get a view that's essentially been untouched for dozens, if not hundreds of years. Uh, what are you talking about? The Caledonian forest would have been around then. Yeah, but... And are you going to pretend that you can't see the roads from many of the summits? No, I, I just... And the pylons! Oh, the pylons! Right, okay. So I'm talking shite, but... Maybe if you, if you fire up a hill, you can't look back in time from the top. But there is a peace and a beauty to being up there. And there's a glorious sense of achievement. <laughs> Fuck me, I'm going to have to go and climb a row after this. The main hills, or the mountains around here, that bring in the most visitors, certainly. Uh, that's going to be the Cairngorms. And I mean, good lord everyone, this area. <laughs> so many jobs are connected to the Cairngorms. Like, Aviemore basically exists because of the folks visiting to go up them. People don't go to Aviemore for the quaint highland ambience. You drive through there on a non-Covid lockdown day, and it's people on North Face to fuck. Rare is it to see jeans in Aviemore. It's trackies. Or outdoor waterproofs there. There's a sense of identity tied into the mountain range for the area. Um, like, certainly, I mean, plenty of businesses, even if they have nothing to do with the outdoors or mountains, have got Cairngorms in the title. There's the Cairngorms National Park Authority, making sure the whole area doesn't get totally fucked up beyond recognition. And I mean, Aviemore itself, that's the village nearest the Cairngorms, Aviemore, it, it brings in, again, in a pre-Covid lockdown world, over a million visitors a year. And I've worked plenty of tourist-related stuff around there. Families were always going to make a trip up the Cairngorms at some point. It's actually saddening to drive around the area because most of the places <laughs> most of the places I've worked at um, appear on the road signs for the tourists. But even places that have nothing to do with mountaineering benefit from the hills. Like for a while I was a greenkeeper on a golf course and the mountains played a big part in the backdrop of the course. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to ignore them. And I remember caddying for my dad when I was a young teen and he was golfing in Hopeman in Murray, right down by the water. And my dad was putting or something, and I was watching this wee boat bob about on the water. And I just noticed how the water was constantly changing, and the light was hitting it, and all that oil painting scenic shite. When one of the guys my dad was playing with noticed me watching it, and he said, "You know, ah, it's Bonnie, isn't it?" And he told me a little bit about the Murray Firth and how far we were from certain places and things. But then he told me that whenever he plays Grandtown, he and his Hopeman buddies can't stop staring at the mountains. Which pretty much made my head spin. Why would you look at a mountain? It doesn't change. The water is always moving. But then I, you know, but then I did look at them, and fuck. Yeah. <laughs> there is something magic about them. The grandeur, perhaps. The whole area really does live in the shadow of the Cairngorms, and it shows. But right, let's get some information out here about the Cairngorms themselves. Now, I'm just going to read this information straight from the Cairngorms Wikipedia page. So don't tell the teacher. The Cairngorms... Oh, it's going to be another Gaelic pronunciation. I'm sorry, guys. An Monach Ruach... And that's probably butchered. The Cairngorms are a mountain range in the eastern highlands of Scotland closely associated with the mountain of the Cairngorm. The Cairngorms consists of high plateaus at around 1,000 to 1,200 metres above sea level, above which domed summits, the eroded stumps of once much higher mountains, rise to around 1,300 metres. 
Many of the summits have tours, freestanding rock outcrops that stand on top of the boulder-strewn landscape. In places, the edges of the plateaus form steep cliffs of granite, and they are excellent for skiing, rock climbing and ice climbing. The Cairngorms form an arctic alpine mountain environment with tundra-like characteristics. Uh, tundra, guys, that means, like, trees don't grow. Tundra-like characteristics and long-lasting snow patches. This area is home to bird species such as ptarmigan, dotterel, snow bunting, curlew and red grouse, as well as mammals such as mountain hare. The plateau also support Britain's only herd of reindeer. Surrounding the central massif are many remnants of the Caledonian forest in straths and glens of the rivers Spey and Dee. These forests support many species that are rare elsewhere in Britain, including red squirrels, pine marten, wood ants, Scottish crossbow, capercaillie and crested tit. There are no glaciers, but snow can fall in any month of the year, and snow patches usually persist all summer. For snow and ice climbing, the area is the most dependable in Britain. The Cairngorms feature the highest, coldest and snowiest plateaus in the British Isles, and are home to five of the six highest mountains in Scotland. And they are, guys. The five of them. There's Ben McDewey, at 1,309 metres. Briarich, at 1,296 metres. Cairn Tool, at 1,293 metres. Scoran Lochin Yun, <laughs> 1,258 metres. And Cairn Gorm, at 1,245. So it's quite a big deal, literally. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, um, if you're wanting a mountaineering challenge or to visit a high peak, it would be one of the first choices. Or maybe if you just had a passion for hills. I fucking love hills! Maybe. And this episode is not sponsored by the Cairngorms. You know, if you want to visit, you go right ahead. Just make sure it's not during lockdown. If you don't want to, I don't care, guys. You do you. Go on holiday wherever you like. You deserve it. And guys, it is because of someone and their passion for climbing the mountain that we are talking about this very story today. Well, not directly. You know, it's not like the guy got back from hiking or climbing and came right over to mine and told me to talk about the fucking thing. I'm going to tell you a story. So our story begins many years ago. <laughs> this is actually a story within a story, sort of Inception style. So the first known public announcement of something strange happening at the summit of Benway Dewey was when a speech was delivered at the Cairn Gorham Club in 1925. I read that this meeting took place in Aberdeen. But it's the Cairn Gorham Club, so why would they meet in Aberdeen? I don't know. Maybe they did. It just seems pretty far away for the club to meet. In fact, another thing that I was reading related to this was talking about, about the more recent sightings of the Big Grey Man. And then we also talk about some guys walking in a forest outside of Aberdeen. So what the fuck? But these are both American books, I should say, so... But Aberdeen can stay away from this. Maybe it's meant to say Aberdeen. I don't know. So at the Cairngorm Club meeting in 1925, a speech was delivered by a gentleman named John Norman Colley. Now, fuck me, guys. I was going to tell you about this guy. So I started reading about him. And he was just one of these cunts that seemed to excel at every fucking thing he did. So I thought I would be lazy and just read his eulogy from when he died. He died in 1942. But he was born in 1859. Lived for over 80 years. Yeah, I thought I could read his eulogy to, like, summarise the man. <laughs> I fucked up her eulogies. I was hoping to summarise this man's life and achievements in, like, 50 lines. Jesus. You know, when we die, someone's just going to summarise our lives in like a five-minute speech. Fuck. But I'll be honest with you guys, this J. Norman Collie guy, he was such a big deal that his fucking eulogy went on for pages. And I got into it. I was reading it, and as it went on, I found myself being like, no way. You know, fucking hell, man. So, pure laziness. Just like before, I'll go through his Wikipedia page, and I'll shout out things about him. Right. J. Norman Colley was an English scientist, mountaineer and explorer. The man came from money. His family made their fortune in the cotton trade, but the American Civil War fucked that up for them. He got a PhD in chemistry. He got that in 1884 in a city called 
Würzburg, Würzburg, in Bavaria. Sorry for the pronunciation. Which, if you read about that place, that place has got some history too. Anyway, after he got his PhD, he came back to Britain and taught at Cheltenham Ladies College in Gloucestershire, which looks posh as fuck. It's a private, independent boarding school type thing. I googled it. It's still open. If you want to send your daughter away to boarding school there, it's £12,780 per term. So over twelve and a half grand per term. Which if you're paying, I'm assuming it's going to have to be worth it. So this guy was teaching at a fancy school. But he left there and he went to work as an assistant to Sir William Ramsay, who was a Scottish Nobel Prize winning chemist. He worked with him at the University College in London. It was also at the University College of London where the Caulifella worked as the Professor of Organic Chemistry, which he did from 1896 to 1913. And then from 1913 to 1928, he was the head of the entire chemistry department there. It goes on to say that he was involved in the work that led to the first X-ray used for medical reasons. Apparently he constructed the first neon lamp, which I feel is a bigger deal than this website is making out, because neon lamps are a staple part of 80s iconography. You know, when you see the film, it's buzzing away over bowling alleys and diners and stuff. And he also did a load of other scientific things, but my ignorance prevents me from knowing what exactly they are. I'll read them anyway. He proposed a dynamic structure for benzene and discovered the first oxonium salt. I don't know what the shit they are, but I'm sure someone does. And bear with me here, guys. I'm just trying to paint a picture of this guy for you. So, in addition to being very well educated and employed as a scientist, his passion was mountaineering. I won't get into all this because, for the love of God, there is so much. But I'll bring it all together with, um... He was the first guy to climb. Well, he was the first guy to have the recorded, you know, the sense. Uh, of plenty of hills and mountains in the UK and abroad. It says here that in 1899 he discovered... How the fuck he discovered... Uh, anyway, in 1899 he discovered the Kioch, which is a big rock. If you've seen the film Highlander, which you should have... It's pretty much the best film ever made. Sean Connery's in it. It's about an immortal Jacobite. Queen did the soundtrack. You should watch it. In the film Highlander, Sean Connery and the other guy, Connor McLeod. Oh, I can't remember the actor's name. Christopher Lambert. They're doing a training montage. That's very 80s, guys. There's plenty of neon lights. And during the training montage, they're doing some sort of weird yoga sword shit. I don't know. But they're doing it on top of the Kioch, which is in Sky. Which isn't Scotland, I should have probably said. Actually, a good friend of mine, his older brother climbed it a few years ago. And when he got up to the top, there were a couple of plastic swords that previous climbers had left. So you could do your own wee... You know, your own wee Highlander sword yoga training montage. I like shit like that. But back to the Collie fella. He was one of the first to go up Ben Nevis in the winter. In 1895, he was climbing along a Himalayan range called the Nanga Parbat. So in 1895, there was him, Collie, a climber called Mamari, and a climber called Hastings. They had two Gurkha guides, Ragubir and Goman Singh. When a fucking avalanche came along and ruined their day, Mamari died, as did Ragubir and Goman. So this Collie guy had been through it. He was smart, he had a shit together, he had a full-time job, and he had a hobby. Now, why am I telling you all this? Basically, because he wasn't some Aviemore Ned who came running down from Ben McDewey, who went straight to the pub saying that he saw some massive cunt on the side of the hill. J. Norman Colley told the audience at the meeting that when he was descending from the summit of Ben McDewey in 1891, he was on his way down alone, with nothing but his thoughts and the sounds of his footsteps in the snow, but then as he continued, he became aware that he could hear other footsteps. Footsteps that weren't his. But he was a reasonable guy and completely surrounded by mist. So he rationalised. He told himself, obviously this is some kind of echo. But then he realised these footsteps weren't matching his. No. These echoes didn't correspond with the source. To quote Mr. Colley, he said... It was as if someone was walking after me by taking steps three or four times the length of my own. End quote. 
So what did Mr. Connolly do? He started to run like he was a man alone on the misty mountainside. Alone in the snow with a fucking giant plodding along after him. That's what he did. Crazy son of a bitch ran blind down the mountain. Maybe four or five miles. He's lucky he didn't hurt himself. And he never went back. The having word does have that effect on some people. But that was Mr. Colley making his speech in 1925. So what do we have in that story? We have a guy who knows what he's doing, walking alone, walking down the mountain, not to the peak, down from the peak. He's surrounded by a mist, and he hears footsteps behind him. But he never saw anything, and it compelled him to run. Interesting. So I'm going to read another little bit of information to you here, guys. This, just like Mister, uh, just like Professor Colley's experience, comes to us from the year of 1925. And much like Professor Colley's, it didn't actually happen in 1925. The year was 1900. Queen Victoria reigned as Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, as well as being the Empress of India, whilst the Second Boer War was in full swing. Also, the book The Wizard of Oz was published. Yay! So in that year of 1900, a man called Henry Kellis was kicking about the mountainside with his brother, a one Dr. A.M. Kellis who apparently was a very experienced mountaineer, who actually died on the 1921-22 Everest Reconnaissance Expedition of a heart attack. Here's a fun fact, or not so fun fact. At the time of me doing this podcast, guys, there have been 304 known deaths of folks on Mount Everest. So do with that information what you will. Back to back to our mountainside story. So, Mr. Kellis and his brother, Dr. Kellis, were up there when they shared an experience. Naturally, they were men about the whole thing, and never made a big deal. But Henry, being the chatterbox that was just so like him, told his, what's described here as a lifelong friend, W.G. Robertson, who wrote a fucking letter to the Present Journal in 1925. The Present Journal, guys, that's like the... Um, it's like a local paper around here, but it's, it's bigger than the local paper. I don't know how to describe it. I don't think folks in London read the Press and Journal, but it's not quite... It's quite a big deal. Anyway, I shall read to you what Mr. W.G. Robertson wrote to the Press and Journal. <clears throat> he and his brother, Dr. Kellis, had been chipping for crystals in the late afternoon, well below the cairn and were together on the slope of a fold of the hill. Suddenly they became aware of a giant figure coming toward them from the cairn. They saw it pass out of sight in the dip on the side of the fold remote from themselves, and awaited its reappearance. But fear possessed them ere it did reach the top, and they fled. They were aware it was following them, and tore down by Cori Erachlan. Well, I'm going to have to try and read that one again. They were aware it was following them, and tore down by Cory Echachan to escape it. Mr. Kellis said there was a mist on part of the hill, but refused to believe that the figure could be the shadow of either his brother or himself, causing an optical illusion. He asked why not two figures, if that had been the case. No one who knew Mr. Kellis or heard him relate his story could doubt his complete faith in his experience. End quote. The book then follows us up with the sentence. According to some sources, Dr. Kellis said that the figure was almost as tall as the ten-foot-high cairn. And by the way, guys, this book that I'm reading from, it's called Mystery Animals of Great Britain and Ireland, written by Graham J. McEwen. Just so you know what I'm quoting from. That seems proper to let you know that. So what do we gather from these two encounters so far? Well, let's just... I know. Let's just assume they're completely honest... Take the guys at their word encounters. Uh, yes, it sounds judgmental, but both encounters involved educated guys. And I don't mean educated as in these folks could good credit scores on their standard grades, but a professor at the University College in London and a doctor. Uh, fair enough, he could have been an honorary doctorate in houseplants. Uh, he was actually a chemist. So we have two educated witnesses, both of them, both of the experiences happening in the same location, 
both encounters happening whilst ascending from the same place. I don't know why that's relevant, but I'm going to mention that anyway. Both of these were on the way down. Both encounters ended with the unwilling participants becoming aware that it's behind them and running down the mountainside. What makes the second encounter, the Kellis story, all the more interesting is that it involved two witnesses. Two witnesses are always more reliable than one, depending on whether or not they spoke to each other about it afterwards and built on each other's stories. Now something else, and let's get a bit more serious here guys, is that both of those stories had the folks involved running as fast as they could down the mountainside to get away, and no injury. I know Scotland's not a massive country, and when you compare it to the size of the mountains, you know, to massive peaks elsewhere in the world, they may not be impressive. But the area still deserves respect. For real, you don't fuck around when it comes to nature. For example, let me just get some numbers to you here, guys. The fastest ever recorded wind speed over land in the UK was recorded in 1993. The wind was recorded at 176 miles per hour. That's pretty fucking fast. And do you know where that was recorded? At the Cairngorm Summit Weather Station. Uh, the lowest recorded temperature in the United Kingdom has twice been recorded in the Cairngorms. Minus 27.2 degrees Celsius. Now, if you want to know in Fahrenheit, that's minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit. That was recorded on the 11th of February 1895 and the 10th of January 1982. And another wee fact for you here, folks. Of all the mountains in the UK, do you know which mountain range has the blemish or the humiliation of being the site of the worst mountaineering accident? The dishonourable title belongs to the Cairngorms. It's not a nice story, but I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of what happened. On the 21st to the 22nd of November in 1971, the Mountaineering Club from Ainsley Park High School in Edinburgh, that's the high school that Irvin Welsh, the author of Trainspotting, went to, the school's Mountaineering Club travelled up to the Highlands and attempted an ambitious trek from one point of the mountain range to a bothy that has since been destroyed. They were caught in a blizzard and from what is thought to be poor leadership, unfortunately, tragically, four of the students and one of the instructors perished. Just out of respect, I shall read their names. The instructor, she was called Sheila Sutherland. The school pupils in alphabetical order. Carol Bertram, Susan Byrne, Lorraine Dick, Diane Dudgeon and William Kerr. Bertram was the oldest of the school children to die. She was 16. The other four, Byrne, Dick, Dudgeon and Kerr, they were all 15. And I mean, th there is more to this story. There's, you know, the rescue efforts and everything. It's known as the Cairngorm Plateau Disaster, or Fiedith Butte Disaster, if you want to look out for yourself. Uh, for this podcast, I was trying to find actual statistics for you, but... What's... I don't want to say frustrating... <laughs> Because I know they're not nice numbers, but what made it difficult to find statistics is that the numbers out there aren't just for the Cairngorms. Um, they include the other mountain ranges too. So what I did was I messaged a friend. That's right, believe it or not, this strange guy has friends. I messaged a friend, um, telling him about the podcast and I asked him if I could write about when he volunteered in the Cairngorm Mountain Rescue. He replied and let me know that I could, but he had never been in Mountain Rescue. Ah, but I remember him having to get helicoptered away up the hill to assist in an avalanche search, which I wasn't wrong about, uh, but he informed me he was actually in fact part of Ski Patrol, which sounds cooler than Mountain Rescue. So shout out to the Mountain Rescue team, but also to Ski Patrol. But the point of messaging my friend was to find out how often rescues are necessary on the mountain and how successful they are. And I can tell you guys, they were not always as successful as one may hope. And he let me know that there's definitely a good 10 to 20 people each winter that will need rescued. Now, of course, depends on the weather and the conditions. But he added that there's normally a few fatalities if there's loads of snow and ice for climbing on. So the mountain range itself, with or without a monster roaming the landscape, can be, and as shown, certainly has been a dangerous environment. 
But let's get back to the big grey man. I'm going to read you another encounter. And then I'll stop with the encounters. Because you probably get the idea by now. The man in the hill. What's that? Oh no, a monster. Wow, run away. That's generally how they go. But this encounter is a little bit different. Okay then. So this story. As reliable as it sounds. As reliable as it sounds. Is the story of a friend. To a man named Richard Frere. Richard Frere was an author. Who lived around Inverness. And wrote books on rock climbing. And the natural world. And from what I gather. He spent a lot of time on the hills. But just to be clear. This isn't his story. It's a story that one of his friends told him. And before I read it. I'm just going to add to all this. I find it very interesting. That Richard Frere believed his friend. Because he was very much against the idea. Of a monster living in Loch Ness. And you generally find that people who are willing to believe in some sort of cryptid or supernatural creature, then they're open to all the others. But not this guy. So anyway, on with the story. I'll set it up for you first, so I don't have to read the entire passage. So the Richard Frere guy, um, his friend had been climbing. He got to the summit, and there's a large cairn at the summit. And he set up his tent. That night as he lay in his sleeping bag, like something out of a horror film, the moonlight. The moonlight was obscured by something outside the tent. And the man lay there paralysed with fear. But then the shadow moved away from the tent and the man made himself get up and looked out the front. And I shall now read directly from the book. The night was brilliant. About 20 yards away, he is curiously certain of the distance, a great brown creature was swaggering down the hill. He uses the word swaggering because the creature had an air of insolent strength about it and because it rolled slightly from side to side, taking huge measured steps. It looked as though it was covered with shortish brown hair. Yes, he asserts, most definitely brown. Its head was disproportionately large, its neck very thick and powerful. By the extreme width of its shoulders, compared to the relative slimness of its hips, he concluded its sex to be male. No, it did not resemble an ape. Its hairy arms, though long, were not unduly so. Its carriage was extremely erect. He tells us that the creature was at least 20 feet in height. And so, end quote. The book continues with the following information. The witness had arrived at his estimate of the creature's height by carefully noting various features of the landscape near to which it had appeared, such as a large boulder, and then applying basic trigonometry. Nerd! Okay, people, so let's talk about this shit. So what we have there in that story is a situation that differs from the previous experience. This guy was not walking down, it was not daytime, he did not run, and he actually got a look at the thing. This guy was camping, it was night. He just watched. And he said it was about 20 foot tall, covered in brown hair, massive head, strong as fuck, and undoubtedly male. Alright, so what do we do with all this? Well, let's just think about what the shit this creature could be. Naturally, the first similar, if I can use the word similar, I'm gonna. The first similar creature to compare it to, what with the mountains and the snow and such, would be the Yeti. Now, the Yeti, if you are unfamiliar with it, is a similar creature to the Big Grey Man, but the difference being that the Yeti's apparently left footprints plenty of times. Uh, the Yeti, or the Abominable Snowman, as he's known, is a part of Himalayan folklore. And the legends of it go back, like way back. Way back within the Tibetan people. But in the 19th century, you know, when the white folks started poking about, that was when the physical descriptions became a massive part of it. The Yeti is described as being tall, well-built, but covered in white shaggy fur. Because it blends into the mountainside, in it? I remember seeing an old Hammer horror film called The Abominable Snowman when I was wee. But if you watch the third Mummy film, the third Brennan Fraser one, there are some yetis in that. Uh, but they're like Catman monsters in that film. Or you can watch Monsters, Inc. There's a yeti in that. <laughs> He's a good guy. So our big grey man, 
the, the only description we have of him so far is that he is not grey, but rather covered in brown hair. So what other brown hair rural country wandering cryptids do we know of? Only the most famous one of all. Ladies and gentlemen, from the North American forests and national parks, from Washington State to East Texas, and not forgetting Canada, it's Bigfoot. I mean, does Bigfoot need any description? This, you know, this guy is the big cheese when it comes to cryptids. He's the head honcho. He's the top dog. Yeah, the Loch Ness Monster is alright, but Bigfoot? He owns this shit! Uh, but he belongs to the, you know, our cousins across the pond. Canadian American forests have been kicking about. And bringing it back to a semi-serious tone. If you are unfamiliar with Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, I shall briefly describe it or him to you. So like I said, found in the forests of North America, Bigfoot has been described as a humanoid-shaped, although very large, over seven foot usually, bipedal creature, covered in hair. The legends itself can be found in ancient native legends and storytellings. But as for sightings, they've been happening pretty much since people started writing down about their time in the woods. The strongest evidence for Bigfoot being real... Um, well, there's plenty of plaster casts of footprints that have been taken over the years. But there's very famous footage from 1967 called the Patterson-Gimlin film. And it shows an apparent Bigfoot creature, a female, due to the breasts on it, walking away from the camera. Uh, the creature briefly looks back at the cameraman. And that's still image. It's... And that's like undoubtedly one of the most famous mystery-related photographs out there. Like, surely you know the photograph. Anyway, so that's Bigfoot. So, could we assume that the Big Grey Man is the Scottish version of Bigfoot? Yeah, you can if you want. Yeah, let's call it there. Okay, so the Big Grey Man is probably just Scotland's version of Bigfoot. I can't think of anything else that could... Uh... Wait a second, hang on. So for real, do you guys think there are more dimensions in this one? <laughs> now let's get a bit out there, guys and gals. If we put aside the fact that Bigfoot and Yeti creatures are spotted in other parts of the world, we can turn to the more spiritual, supernatural. Wild men, they're an ancient European part of folklore, sort of like the green giant from the cans of sweet corn. They're seen as a protector of the natural world. And their legends, like I said, are European. They're found in German folklore, French, Swiss. What the hell else is in Europe? Um, fuck. Holland. And of course, ye old England folktales too. Even in the King Arthur tales. They're seen as protectors of the natural world. Usually naked or hairy and wielding a club. Could this story be a branch off of one of those? Something to think about. Let's just have ourselves another encounter story. But you said you weren't going to do another one. Yeah, well, I lied. This is called The Crack, not The Truth. I am reading this one directly from a book called Scottish Ghosts by an author called Lily Seafield. This book has been printed several times by different publishers. Because I, the fool that I am, have bought it more than once. Twat. Okay, right, so where was I? In 1943, a man called Alexander Tunayon. Tunayon? Alexander Tunayon? T-E-W-N-I-O-N was on Ben McDewey. He was a naturalist with considerable experience in the mountains. As he climbed, he became aware of the sound of heavy, slow footsteps. After a while, a large figure rushed at him out of the mist. Tunian shot at the shape three times 
but seemed neither to hurt nor scare it off. He turned and fled, and eventually managed to shake off his sinister follower. The figure on Ben McDewey, whoever or whatever it may be, certainly seems to be a malign presence, and its manifestations have succeeded in inspiring great fear in even the most hardened mountaineers. End of passage. So what's this? An outdoorsman with mountain experience, heavy footsteps behind him. Just like the others. But then holy shit, something came at him. And this guy was packing heat. But I suppose in 1943, <laughs> you could be climbing a mountain and a German soldier could just have come parachuting down. So I suppose that excuses the guy for keeping a handgun beside his Kendall mint cake. But apparently the gun didn't do any damage to the creature. And the man had to run away. Like the others. It's almost like the creature was trying to keep him away from the area. Now I'm just going to go ahead and direct this entire subject matter to a country I have never visited. Wales. I'd like to go, I've just never had a reason. Wales has its share of mountains too, and they also have their folklore. The reason I'm mentioning this is because they have a figure called Brennan Lude. I probably totally mispronounced that. Or in English, Grey King. This character is said to haunt the top of Mount Snowdon preying on lone travellers who get lost in the mist. Like, guys, in fact, did they just copy the big grey man? Seems it. Or maybe there's more than that. Maybe there's something to it. You guys familiar with fairies? Like Tinkerbell? Yeah. Well, this area has its more than fair share of fairy-related stories. There's the... Oh, what the fuck's that hill called? There's a hill in Inverness that they apparently live in and some poor guy got taken away by them but then let go later that night. But a hundred years had passed. Uh, then there's the Green Lock near Aviemore which um, it seems everyone with an Instagram account went there during lockdown. And yes, maybe it's green because of the limestone but the reason it's green so my mother told me when I was a wee boy and so her dad told her when she was a wee girl. The reason it's green is because that's where the fairies wash their clothes. Which makes sense. Fairy legends go way back in this area. And why? Do they come from some long ago point of truth? As hippie as it sounds, there isn't energy to these isolated places. Uh, yeah, I can't even describe that, yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> There's woods near Loch Morlock I love to be in. Um, part of the Abernethy forest. And it just it feels right to be there. It's, yeah, there's an energy to it. Could there be a spiritual reason behind the sightings? Could there be, maybe, a chance that these encounters people have had with the Big Grey Man or the Grey King... What about the chance that these things are guards or gatekeepers for other realms? I know. Like fairy realms that can only be reached during certain weather conditions or at certain times in these isolated places. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm saying. Maybe these guys are bouncers for the fairy worlds. Sorry, mate, you're not getting in here with trainers on. But that's the version I like to believe. I like to think that there's things that we can't understand from a time that we don't know and it's all still going on behind a veil that we can't get our hands on. So I could go ahead and call it there. It's been going on for almost an hour. But one more story just for you guys. Tom Crowley's experience. I shall read from the book directly again. Once again, guys, Mystery Animals of Great Britain and Ireland by Graham J. McEwen. I understand that there is a fantastic book on the subject called The Big Grey Man of Ben McDewey by Affleck Grey which would have been great to have when doing this but fuck me, why do anything the easy way? Okay, so the encounter. One day in the early 1920s Crowley was descending from Breirach to Glen Enoch when he heard footsteps behind him. 
he saw something which caused him to flee in terror to the glen below. A huge grey figure, with pointed ears, long legs, and feet with talons which more resembled fingers than toes. Spooky stuff, eh? What did he see? Honestly, I think probably an owl. Because uh, those fuckers are scary. But for real, if you Google spooky or scary owls, I have, and I'll admit I've Googled it more than once, you'll see photos of them being spooky as shit. The feathers in their heads can look like horns or pointed ears. And their legs... Did you know that owls have weird legs? So, realistically, what is happening with all this? Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. Uh, but I would assume some kind of survival instinct kicks in to these folks due to the thin air or the panic of being surrounded by a mist. I remember when I was when I was little. It was Hogmanay, and there was folks around at the house. Party. One of the men there had uh, a very long time before. He worked on rooftops. And I don't remember exactly what his job was, but the story I remember was he was in London doing his thing, which he'd done for years and years. He'd been up at crazy heights and seen the ground from many a different rooftop. One day it was misty, and he went away up the scaffolding alone to get to work. And while he was working, the mist cleared, and he was unaware of that. So he kept working away and working away and working away, uh, but suddenly noticed the mist was gone. Which wouldn't have bothered him, which shouldn't have bothered him, but it did bother some part of him. And he locked. He froze. He couldn't move at all. This was a guy who had worked heights for years, and by all means was a professional or experienced, and he found himself completely paralysed. Now there's a happy ending, because after a while his co-workers saw that he wasn't around, so they looked for him and they found him. They got him down. Uh, but yikes. My point there is that these experienced mountaineers and outdoorsmen, they're still at the mercy of their instincts and the unconscious reactions. And I'm thinking maybe our brains don't like being alone on mountainsides in the mist. Maybe it, you know, kickstarts a survival mechanism. Like when you wake up in the night and you need the toilet and it's dark and you don't want to walk the short distance from your bedroom to the bathroom in case that evil thing's there and it's there and it's going to get you and you go out so you try to go back to sleep but you can't sleep because you pee so much and you make yourself go well that doesn't happen to me sometimes it happens to you coward I'm just saying my hallway's scary at night time now as for the figure being seen uh, the massive figure being seen there is a phenomena which is known as a Brocken Spectre. These occur when there is a mist on a hill or a mountainside and the sun is behind the person. Their shadow gets boomed up and magnified which creates the illusion of a huge person. A grey person. Sometimes a little halo forms around the head and it looks like an angel. It's pretty cute stuff. And finally what was with the footsteps? Well, around 10 years ago, I was Googling about this very subject and an interesting video I came upon answered that, or it, it, it at least offered an answer to the footsteps. The video had a hill walker talking about his experience of walking alone when he became aware of footsteps that were following him. He would stop and they would stop. He would speed up and they would speed up. He got spooked and he was tempted to break into a run. Which sounds pretty much like what we've been talking about here, doesn't it? I'm not saying that this answers like this isn't a definitive answer or anything, but it's an explanation. I'm offering an explanation. The fellow that was walking alone was walking along, hearing the footsteps, so he stopped and he had to think. He felt the weight in his rucksack shifting, and he thought that was strange. So we had a look to see what that could have been. Then what he discovered was that his flask of tea was sitting in the bag at an awkward angle. And what was happening was when he walked along, due to the way the flask was, 
the contents were sloshing from side to side. So he walked, step, 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 and the tea would move. Slosh, slosh, slosh. The faster he walked, step, 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 faster the tea moved. Slosh, slosh. And likewise when he slowed. So there's an explanation for the steps. For yeah. Of course, it isn't going to be as satisfactory as it could be. And I'd love to say that the big grey man's been caught on film or camera. But no. Just the eyewitnesses. And folklore and stories. Entertaining, but frustrating in their lack of proof. Most likely a cautionary tale. <laughs> Well, guys, is that an abrupt ending? Probably. I think I shall leave you with that. So that's the crack with the big grey man of Ben McDewey. And I hope this leaves you with more questions and answers. You can go and do some research and look it up. There's never been a major film made on the subject. There was last year, I think, a Doctor Who audio drama about it. But it's never been in cinemas. But, uh, yeah, we're done. Yeah. But I, <laughs> thanks for listening. If you haven't liked us on social media, please feel free to, uh, you know, on Facebook, we are The Crack Podcast, Twitter, at Podcast Crack, Instagram, thecrack.podcast. Um, but please do email thecrackpodcastcontact at gmail.com. Any feedback, any thoughts, any theories. So, until next time guys stay safe keep out of trouble don't take any shit look after yourself respect nature mind that the weather on the hillside can't turn in a second and be good I'll talk to you next time bye for now